Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Kala Krishna, who is Professor of Economics and Liberal Arts Research at Penn State University. Her research interests span international trade and development. Welcome, Kala. Thank you, Judith, for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your papers, uh, this one from 2016, entitled Better Luck Next Time Learning Through Retaking. Uh, you say in this paper we provide some evidence that repeat taking of competitive exams may reduce the impact of uh, uh, background disadvantages on educational outcomes. Um, and uh, I can relate to this, Kala. I, I uh, grew up in South India, and when I was getting ready for uh, engineering school, uh, India has this uh, central exam called JEE, as you know, Joint Entrance Exam. And, um, you know, I had all my education in my local language. So essentially, I had to relearn all the English words before I could take JEE. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, so I can, uh, the, you're looking at data here from Turkey, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, sort of a similar situation. Well, um, yes and no. Uh, in Turkey, there's a high school leaving. Uh, at the end of high school, you take the university entrance exam. And unlike many countries where only few, you know, very elite take university entrance exams, in Turkey, almost everyone takes the university entrance exam who graduates from high school. So uh, that's one difference in Turkey. Um, the other thing in Turkey is that, you know, the way that the system is designed is amazingly rational. You know, I think it's Ataturk uh, who deserves uh, the credit for pulling Turkey into the modern era. But the way it's designed, it's like you choose what you want to do in um, the track you want to take when you're going to essentially senior high school. And um, then there are the, and 
you know, before the, uh, before you to go to senior high school, there are these open competitive exams for high school, which are called uh, science high schools or Anatolian high schools. So these are exam schools. So this sort of allows talent at different income levels to bloom because, you know, even if you're poor, you can go to this great science high school. And if you need the money for uh, tuition or anything, they give it to you. And I think a lot of countries have this, including Turkey, like Kenya has this, um, I think um, uh, Benin has this, a lot of African countries have this. And it's a remarkable way of ensuring that at least some chance is there for upward mobility of the poor. Uh, so, you know, you take this university entrance exam and we were very curious about what happens, you know, in Turkey, out of the 1.2 million people who took the university entrance exam in the year we have data for, only one third were taking it for the first time. And you can take this exam only once a year. So mm -hmm. these people are waiting a whole year to retake. So you say, what is going on? So our first thing was, look, maybe they think that they're going to do better, that maybe they learn something in between this because of this one year. And that's what drove this uh, first paper. Um, and it was sort of a lot of fun because what we had was what's called a cross-section. We had only one, all the data on this one year, 2002. Uh, we didn't have a panel, which is we can track people across years. And that made a lot of the technical part mm -hmm. very difficult. And we had some very clever ways of uh, dealing with those things. And the end result that we found was something which I, I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, we found that the poor tended to catch up when they retook because their learning gains were larger than those of the better off. And that sort of makes sense because if you think of, think of a rich kid, right? He's been given every chance. He's had tutors, he's had you know, every uh, extracurricular thing that could help him grow. Uh, he's at his production possibility frontier. <laughs> it's not gonna get better. While if you take a, you know, a disadvantaged child um, and you give him some time to learn more, um, then Maybe you'd expect that he would make substantial gains, you know. It's very similar in India, right? Yeah. So there is no penalty uh, of retaking the exam. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I think SAT and GRE and things like that, you know, every time you take it, they're going to report the entire previous uh, exam scores too. That's not the case here? No, but it's... um. It's not a penalty. I mean, that is actually better for you because many colleges in the U.S. with SATs they take the best score. They yeah. don't take the most recent score, right? But um, it's not a penalty. It's it's actually very dangerous because when you retake, your last score is gone. Yeah. So if you do worse, well, too bad. <laughs> but one thing that remains with you is your GPA. So when you take the exam, 
you have two things that go into your what's called your placement score. You have your high school GPA, which stays with you for your life. And then you have the exam scores in the different subjects. And depending on what track you're in, science, social studies, language, uh, whatever, um, Turkish math is the other track, um, the weights given on these subjects is different, which makes sense. If you're going to be a scientist, if you're in science, then math and physics should matter more than if you're going to be a social studies person. Right? So um, that's one thing. The only place a penalty comes in is when you're already enrolled in a college program, then your GPA is halved. So there is a substantial penalty mm. if you take the exam and try for replacement uh, while you're already enrolled. And that makes sense. They don't want to discourage this, right? I mean, you really don't want people to take two years of a college course, which is, by the way, highly subsidized in Turkey because the best universities are public. Uh, only now are the private universities really, you know, beginning to compete. So um, I, I think it's a very rational system. Mm. Uh, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um... You mentioned in the paper that um, clearly in the U.S. we have a slightly different way of uh, making these decisions. There are a lot of qualitative aspects, um, mm -hmm. essays and so on. Uh, I remember from India, you know, it was one exam and that's it. <laughs> you know? uh, and there are some downsides to that type of process too, I would imagine, right? Yes, but the downside, I think, depends on two things. One is whether you can retake, that's one of the big things about retaking, you know, nothing is fake. Uh, and the other is how much randomness there is in the score. Mm. Because if there isn't a lot of randomness in the score, then you know, it's pretty good. So that's part of what you have to estimate when you're doing this, right? It's a key part of whether it's going to be good for society as a whole, bad for society as a whole. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, it's not an easy answer, right? In the US, one of the reasons I like playing with the Turkish data is the US is so miserably complicated, you know? And this complication allows people and colleges to get away with extremely unfair decisions. I mean, the Harvard case just now, which uh, we all know about, shows how they've successfully discriminated uh, against certain groups um, for many years and in favor of other groups for many years. I mean, it's their right, but uh, I think if they're taking government money, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, the, I guess the objection will be kind of, I don't know, I, I haven't really studied this much. The objection would be, uh, if we look at outcomes, um, if we cannot really robustly show that exam scores are highly correlated with outcomes, and we don't really have the counterfactuals, you know, uh, the top uh, exam takers get in, and are exam takers really the, uh, are they really getting the best outcomes is, is, is the, will be the question. You mean outcomes in terms of later life? Uh, late in life, yeah, success. It's interesting that you said this because there's a recent paper by Petra Person and Rebecca Diamond, which um, looks 
uh, at Sweden. And in Sweden, they have, in high school, they have this um, thing which gives them, the teacher has the ability uh, to decide which students get what's called high distinction versus not. And they show that the two things, one they show is that the teacher seems to use private information that they have on the students mm. to decide this. And so the teacher knows more information than we have from the administrative data. Mm. And that's uh, one thing. And the second thing they show, which is I thought was really important, was this matters. This matters to the person later on in life. They make more money. The life outcomes are better. So, I mean, one always wonders, you know, what difference that two marks make, five marks make. But in a country as egalitarian as Sweden, if this makes a difference that you can estimate precisely, even though it's not huge, right? I mean, everything's compressed in Sweden, all regions are compressed in Sweden. But it's interesting, it seems to matter. And it sort of makes sense because. It's a signal about you, right? <laughs> One of many signals, but it is a signal and it's informative. Yeah, I know that if you studied uh, Norway, um, uh, kind of, I, I don't know anything about it either. But Norway always comes up, you know, from an education perspective, a top mm -hmm. spot. And I understand that they have gone through some uh, real transformation. Um, they moved away from, you know, from sort of prescriptive. Uh, syllabus, you know, physics one, physics two, physics three type syllabus, essentially giving students uh, more flexibility to design what they want. Uh, it's sort of a regime change. Um, in, in such a situation, then testing would be very different, right? I mean, you cannot really have a standardized test anymore. I think that's the way that we're going in the world in the sense that um, there's this feeling that, you know, degrees are going to be worthless now. They're going to be proficiencies. So what you do is you say, okay, I'm interested in computers and software. What do I do? I go to a boot camp and then I take some, you know, coding test, which shows that I'm proficient. It doesn't show I'm the best among, you know, 5 million, but it shows that I'm proficient in this. And I think that's the way that they're trying to design things in Norway. But it's expensive. You know, it's much easier, especially with online um, teaching, to design one course and then, you know, have a massive online course that everybody can attend. Uh, it's much, much cheaper. When you do these kinds of things, they are for richer countries like Norway. Uh, hopefully, for more countries as we learn how to do more of this online. But um, I think this is this makes sense, right? Yeah. So, so you know, the one of the points you make in the paper is that this retaking of the exam seemed to benefit disadvantaged students. Uh, and again, I can go back and look at my experience. For example, if there's a verbal section in a standardized exam, and you are not an English-speaking uh, person, okay. uh, it doesn't really tell you much at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like people for the SATs, foreign students often memorize dictionaries so that right. they can learn it. So they have, you know, set almost perfect verbal scores and they can't speak English. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I had to do for my GRE, you know. 
go to the dictionary and start memorizing <laughs> words. But but in retrospect, it looks like it substantially improved my, Look my uh, verbal capabilities. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there's a silver lining there. But but I think a standardized way to measure verbal capabilities uh, really assumes that everybody is sort of you know same level of. Um, initial conditions, right? And, oh, yeah. uh, and and even analytical sections, uh, I think there was a study I saw a long time ago that the way that the, the questions are worded is such that it's going to have more difficulty for a foreign student to really internalize. And these are highly timing, uh, timing based uh, exams. So, yeah. you, you know, if you're taking five seconds, 10 seconds more to really understand the meaning of the question, then you are already at a at a big disadvantage potentially, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not just foreign students. I mean, they were there's evidence that's been quoted on the SAT, like you know, if you put words like regatta, uh, well, the rich are going to know what it means, but the poor are not going to have a clue, right? So black students felt discriminated because a lot of the words being used are sort of culturally based. Maybe white people more know those words better than black people. Uh, or foreign students know these words less well than you know, American students. But um, uh, you know, this, this issue of how the tests are framed is very difficult and they work very hard to try and make it neutral, but it's inescapable. The tests are going to be framed by people after all, they're people, and um, so there's going to be some bias. But I doubt that the bias is huge. You know, right. I, I, it's there, but it's probably not that large. <laughs> okay, uh, but this Turkish data tells you that uh, disadvantaged students benefit from retaking the exam. And so from a policy perspective, uh, you mentioned it's only given once a year, so if you want to retake, you have to wait a year. So do you see some sort of a policy perspective? You start early, maybe you take, you know, three, four exams before you actually come to that, that point well, in time. <laughs> they already do that. Yeah, in yeah. the sense that there's a huge and thriving industry of preparation for tests. So even the poorest students in school or in learning in some cram school uh, have probably taken 20, 30 exams before they take this exam. Mm. But, uh, you know, it, it's just how far are you away from your potential? Mm. And it, I think the same thing is true in India, you know, when you have these reservations for scheduled cars, scheduled tribes, the aim is to try and give them a chance to catch up. Right. How well that works, you know, <laughs> is another story. Yeah, I, I was wondering, you know, if, if these are standardized tests, then um, retaking uh, may potentially skew the standardization too, right? Yes, um, it, it messes things up in a very fundamental way. You know, so as we were saying, when you're retaking, why are you retaking? You're retaking because you, you had a miserable day, you didn't sleep well, you couldn't concentrate in the test, uh, it was really hard, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. You have a reason why you feel you did worse than you expected to do. Right? You could have done better. And so you say, well, I need to retake. 
Um, I'm very sympathetic with that because, you know, I, I used to be sick when in May when the exams would be because I'd always get asthma. So I'd be, oh, well, I should retake. But at the same time, the paper that we have on uh, retaking um, shows something very simple, which is you know, why for the individual, it's 100% true that allowing the option of retaking makes them better off. Yeah. You mess up, it's life is a door, you can take another one. Um, but what about the equilibrium effects of this? So as happens in Turkey, you know, only a third of people taking the exam for the first time. Well, if more people are taking the exam and you have the same number of seats, what's going to happen? The cutoffs are going to rise. If a million people are taking the exam to get into one school, like to get into the civil service, say in India, well, the cutoffs are going to be a lot higher than if only 100,000 people are taking it. So what ends up happening in equilibrium is when you allow retaking, all cutoffs rise so that in our estimation, we show that roughly Everybody shows up in the same place. So there's a distinction made in the paper on ex ante before you retake. So somebody said, okay, should retaking be allowed or not? What's your answer? Ex ante, we show everybody gains. Hmm. Everybody gains when you ban retaking. The other thing is ex post, well, after you know your results, then are you better off? And 80% people even then are better off if you were banned retaking. So it, it's sort of like a complete waste because it's you're taking this extra year to roughly get in the same place that you would have if they're banned retaking. Mm. It's complete waste of resources. It's it's a rat race because if I do better, you'll do worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it will, over time, it sets an expectation and so if you sort of pushing the curve to the right, you know, somebody taking it 20 times, presumably is doing going to do best you know, the 20th time. No, so you keep pushing the curve to the right, right? Um, and, and so at some point you say, well, I have to do it five times before I can, you know, get anywhere reasonable. This is what happens, you know, I mean, like in, uh, in Japan, um, a very dear friend of mine told me, he retook the university entrance exam until he got to the University of Tokyo because he had to get into the University of Tokyo. He took it four times. What a waste. Yeah. Uh, in India, they've stopped allowing uh, individuals to take the civil service exam after a certain age because people would grow old taking the civil service exam because there are so many rents there. They preferred that to other things so much more mm. that they were quite okay with, you know, waiting 10 years to get in. In China, in Imperial China, getting into the, you know, administrative service there, people would spend 10 years, 20 years studying for this to get into this thing. Mm. Now, this is a social waste. Like, it might even be better for me to do this. I might be better off studying for 20 years and getting into the Indian administrative service or the Chinese Imperial service. But what about for society? When, because I get in, somebody else won't get in. And maybe that guy who would have gotten in should have gotten in. Yeah. 
here. So this is the this is idea in your uh, another paper retaking a high stakes exam is less more. So so you ask here placement both in university and in the civil service according to performance and competitive exams is the norm uh, in much of the world, and repeat taking of such exams is common despite the private and social costs it imposes. So you talked about some social costs, which is really a waste of resources. Um, to some extent, it's a waste of a person's life. I mean, if somebody's you know, waiting for 15 years for a job, um, even if the job is the perfect job, uh, you lost 15 years in, you know, <laughs> to yeah. waiting to get it, right? Um, so it's really lack, so it's a waste of resources in general. And so, so are there some policy implications here too? I, I don't know what the situation. So this is—is is this a situation in India too, like IAS or IFS or something? You can take it many, many times and wait many yeah. years. Now you can. Now there's an age limit. I think it's 32 or something. That after that age, you are not allowed to take it. But the cost that I impose—the social cost—it's what we call an externality, right? When I do something, there's spillovers that are negative to other people. Yeah. In my case, I study harder, I get into the thing because I take it 10 times, but that means your chances are lower. Right. And this negative externality, I don't take into account, and that's what makes it suboptimal. That's what makes for this social distortion. Yeah, it, 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 something like that happens in the U.S. also, Kala. I don't know if you looked into this. Uh, for example, medical school um, entrance, right, with MCAT. Um, and, you know, people take it. It's a very, um, very important determinant in the in that mission decision. Mm -hmm. uh, people take it many times. Um, and and I think there is you know something similar happening in that in that system except perhaps MCAT they say they report all scores and I think increasingly universities are looking down on this idea that if you have four scores reported right. that sort of gives them some information that this person is you know sort of trying it over and over again and that might uh, reflect negatively on your application I wonder. I, I not sure it does because the universities are very clear about how they treat these schools and most of them just look at the best score but you know in the us this competition which we see as fierce is nothing compared to the competition that's there in china or korea yeah. i mean the this exam that they take to get into university in china i mean people are passing out because of this stress you know Parents are passing on because of the stress, <laughs> even on the poor kids. Yeah, so, huge stress. And, and I think the suicide rates, especially in Japan, yeah. is very high because of this, right? Yeah. And it means so little, you know, when you, when you think about it. What difference does it make, really, whether you went to the University of Tokyo or you didn't, or you went to, you know, uh, Singwa or you didn't. Uh, and it's very hard to explain to a child that, Life is not over just because you didn't get into the school that you want. Uh, and I think they're trying to fix this because in Korea, for example, they're trying to, they put limits on how late these cram schools could stay open because children, the students, they were just, their lives were like this. And so the article saying, you know, are we making Korean children into robots because of this? In China, the president very recently said that 
these cramped schools are not a good thing, at which point the stock of these publicly traded cramped schools fell like a stone. Mm. So, you know, there's also evidence that they are realizing that this is not a social good thing for society. So I, I, I think it's, it's sort of obvious when you realize the economics of it, the general equilibrium impacts of it. Uh, in a lot of these sort of contest settings in comparison to this one, the idea is sort of to elicit effort. You want people to put in more effort because they're not putting in enough. But in this setting, already you know the exam matters. They're putting in a lot of effort. You're just encouraging more and more effort, which is probably wasteful. Because what are you memorizing when you apply for, for example, Indian Administrative Service or Indian Foreign Service? You memorize a bunch of history dates, some facts. <laughs> I mean, what is this rubbish? Is it going to help you? We can Google it now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You don't have to know it. Yeah, so, so if you take these two papers together, Carla, so if I understand this correctly, what you're saying is that if you have disadvantaged exam takers, it makes sense uh, to repeat it because it sort of gets the initial conditions, it, it gets them sort of a level playing field, so yeah. to speak, right? So yeah. get the initial conditions roughly right. But on the other hand, if you're just taking it over and over again just for a higher score, that seems like a waste of waste of everybody's time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so I want to touch on a couple of your um, recent papers, and one of them, taking PISA seriously. How, <laughs> how accurate are low stakes exams? So I don't know much about this. Uh, PISA, yeah, you say, is seen as a gold standard for evaluating educational outcomes worldwide. Yet being a low stakes exam, students may not take it seriously, resulting in downward bias scores in inaccurate uh, rankings. So this is something, this is, uh, we don't have it here, right, do we, in the US? Everyone takes it. Oh, <laughs> I mean, uh, every country takes it. Only India, they tried it once, and we, they did so badly that they wouldn't allow them to. <laughs> but uh, they, they do it in, in the US. In fact, they do it by state in some states in the US. So the data is state-wise, not all states, but for some states in the US, as well as agri. Almost every developed country does it, and many developing countries do it. What's the goal? So this is uh, testing some sort of foundational educational yeah. attainment? It's, it's testing how well you can basically do things that are necessary for life. Like, you know, can you add up your bill? Can you figure out, um, you know, what percentages are? It's simple things, but they're questions that are, you know, it's in a, in a question framework. Uh, it's a multiple choice exam. Some are tick ABCT, some are open, but um, the thing about PISA is everybody thinks that this is like as good as it gets, right? They have a whole directorate uh, that's doing this, they have statisticians, they have people who design the questions so that they're fair as possible. Um, if you look at the documentation that comes with these guys, it's phenomenal. I mean, it is so well done statistically, yet 
<laughs> when you think about what they're doing in terms of economics, you realize why on earth first are these students bothering to put in any effort into this exam? It doesn't matter for them. It doesn't matter for their school. It, you're sitting there doing these exams. Why? You know, why aren't you just goofing off? And then you, when you look at the data, you realize, yep, they're goofing off. And because of that, you say, well, these, these rankings, people live and die by these rankings. Governments fall because of these rankings. You know? It's like, why was the PISA ranking of country X? Did it, why did it fall by eight you know, places? And you know, suddenly the questions in parliament and all kinds of stuff is happening. But are these rankings actually accurate? And that's what we set out to do. So what we realized was a lot of students, and this the thing that makes it difficult is this varies a lot across country. So like in some countries, people are taking it, students take it pretty seriously. Who knows why? We have some hypotheses, but we don't have any causal reasons why they're doing it. We just notice in some countries, there are very few skipped questions. There are very few questions where it's very apparent the guy is just going, Tick, eh, 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 eh. you know, I've got to get this exam done. Eh, everyone. <laughs> so what we do in this paper is we say, first, let's document how much there is of this non-serious behavior in many ways. So you could be non-serious because you do A, 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 A. You could be non-serious because you're taking too little time, even though you're going A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. You know? um, um, when we do this, we realize, well, how can we correct for this? So the obvious answer for us was, when we, if we can identify non-serious data, we can just remove it and impute it because it doesn't occur that often. It occurs often enough that it matters, but it doesn't occur so often that you can't impute it using really good imputation programs that we have now. So the imputation programs take into account everything you've done. So you get some idea of how smart the guy is. And what you see in the patterns is, you know, it's like when you answer for the same difficulty question, the chances you get it right fall as the, as the exam progresses. So accounting for all these things, placement in the question in the exam, how difficult it is, how well you've been doing uh, so far, how well people like you have done, we can impute your response for items that you have not taken seriously. Yeah. So when we do that, then we get an estimate, including this, for um, uh, different countries, which is much, much more accurate, we think. And actually, I mean, PISA knows that this is a problem. And they try to deal with it by basically, if you stop the exam at some point, they ignore everything after that. So they know it's a problem. It's not like there's a time constraint because there's plenty of time. Most people have lots of time left over after they finish the exam. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to impute this. And when we do this, we think, right, um, we find the rankings change quite dramatically. You can get, you know, 
five, eight ranking changes for a country. Uh, and if that's the case, well, maybe we don't have to take these rankings so seriously. Or we should try and adjust for these rankings to the best of our ability, because it does make a difference. And this is particularly so in the middle of the distribution. The bottom guy stays the bottom. Top guy usually stays at the top. It's the middle that the rankings change a lot. And you know, given how much importance we assign to this, why not do it right? Yeah, I wondered. Um, so there are no incentives in the system, neither for the student nor for the school or the teacher to take it seriously. So I wondered, you know, if if some sort of um, teacher rating or even teacher compensation uh, could be tied to it, then things could potentially change, right? It could, it could. But then the question comes up, which people worry about, about teaching to the exam. Hmm. Like if you motivate teachers monetarily, say, then what are they going to do in class instead of teaching them what you know, the curriculum is, they're going to say, okay, peace are coming up, let's try these practice exams. That's distortion in its own way. That's the good thing about PISA because it's not something they study for. You can actually see how much they know without the cramming part getting into it. That, that's one of the things that I think people see is good about PISA. Right? Yeah. It might help to say, well, you know, in every school, the top few PISA participants will be acknowledged or, you know, will get some books or, you know, Something which is low, it's low value enough that it won't cause massive distortions in terms of effort and, and so on and so forth, which we don't want in terms of money for it, but enough that people want to take the exam and do it the best of their ability. Yeah. And, and it's a beautiful thing because uh, it is international. So like you suggested, you're, you're getting some benchmarks that might give us a lot of information but then if students are not really taking it seriously, that information is not valid. I almost think that there could be some negative correlation between high achieving students <laughs> and, and, and FISA scores potentially, right? Because- They get bored. Yeah, they could get bored. I mean, it's also sort of interesting because what we find is when, when you're given a lot of exams, by the system, not by your teacher. So if the system is testing you constantly, you tend to blow off the PISA exam saying, oh God, I'm fed up with this whole thing. But if your teacher is testing you, you don't have the same resentment. I mean, that's correlation, it's not causation, but this is a correlation we see in the data, which I thought was quite interesting. The data is magnificent, by the way. I mean, they have data on the teachers, they have data on background, they have just the most beautifully, carefully compiled and explained uh, setup. And it, it's a gold mine, but you have to be very careful. So, what's the organization that's responsible for this? OECD. So, it's an international organization, you know, international bureaucrats are doing this for us. And so, so it's fundamentally driven from Europe or Europe. In Europe yeah. It's basically Europe. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a shame that because there is no incentive in the system, you can't really 
take the information as as useful from an analytical perspective. Um, but but something something needs to be done, I guess. So you have another paper kind of that just uh, came out in 2019. Uh, does class size matter, and how and at what cost? And a lot of people have uh, you know uh, wondered about this. You say high quality administrative data on Greece. Uh, we show that class size has a hump shaped effect on achievement. So. If I understand this correctly, uh, if it is really too small or too big, they are negative, but there's sort of an optimum, an inverted U type um, yeah. relationship here, right? Yeah. It's the Goldilocks, you know, Goldilocks range. So, I mean, it makes sense exposed. When we started this paper, we were sort of really shocked to find that in the literature, they had basically allowed, not allowed for non-monotonicities. So most of it was just linear. So if it's linear, it either goes up or it comes down. So if it's hump shaped, well, depending on where the hump is, some things, some studies will find it's up, some studies will find it's down. And that's exactly what the literature was showing. Mm -hmm. But people had not allowed for this non-monotonicity. Uh, and when we did that in, our, in the Greek data that, uh, we had my co-author actually, Regissa, she went school to school in Greece and yeah. managed to acquire this data. We find very strong evidence that it's hump-shaped. So it, it makes sort of sense exposed, right? When you think about it, when you're in a class, how do you learn? You learn because the teacher is telling you something and also because of the students who are around you. Now, some of the literature has shown that the more students that are close to you in ability and understanding they are, uh, the better you learn other things given. And that makes sense because if the, the students were very bright, well, maybe they're on a different, you know, um, sort of a bandwidth. You, you're not, when they talk to you, it's like, what are you talking about? Right? You need somebody who's better than you, but maybe too much better than you, because if he's too much better than you, he'll be talking Dutch too, right? So when you have a very small class, you don't gain from this kind of interaction as much as you do when the class is a little larger. But if the class becomes too large, then, you know, the teacher is running ragged, trying to get these uh, kids to learn. And um, it, it sort of, to us, it made perfect sense. There was a sweet spot, and that sweet spot was, you know, roughly about uh, 20 odd students. Um, made sense. The problem with class size is it's extremely expensive to reduce class size. Right? But we were very happy because we managed to make sense of these conflicting estimates that have been prevalent in the class size literature. In fact, I mean, we have a quote in the paper. They say, look, it's a mystery. Why is it that we can't find any consensus in this? So we were very happy. It's a very simple reason. You can't find any consensus in this. It's non-monotonic. And then what we do is we take these estimates and embed them in a dynamic model and try to do some health calculations. Yeah. It's, um, so, so do you see some sort of, a, you mentioned it, uh, some sort of a social 
uh, the class works more like a system. So students are learning from not only from the teacher, but also their peers to some extent, right? So, so, so are we finding here that, so that optimum point is sort of let the system work more efficiently. If that's the case, um, is this, does it help? I wonder if it has some implications even for workplaces, you know, um, uh, departments and groups yeah. or project teams, you know, they, 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 they learn from, uh, you know, from a situation like that too. Yeah. Do you see any translation there? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, that's something that uh, nobody's actually worked on, on the optimum size of a team with all this remote work going on. Uh, people have noticed that you know this interaction is less, but on the other hand, people seem to enjoy uh, the ability to uh, you know be more flexible uh, there. But yeah. in the context of the paper, there's a distinction that we make, which is very important, which is one is the class size at which the maximum gains in terms of learning occur. So this is where the students seem to learn the most. But it's not like it's costless. Teachers, classrooms, uh, these are the costs of having a smaller uh, class. And so you take this hump shape and then you take the cost, both the ongoing cost, so the marginal cost of having another classroom, as well as any adjustment costs you might have. So if you're a school and you used to have two classrooms in the 10th grade, and now you want to expand the classroom, well, then you have to pay the teacher something, but then you may also have to hire that teacher, maybe costly to do that. Whenever we hire a faculty member, I mean, when I think of the costs involved in terms of foregone time by the faculty, as well as you know, bringing the person in and taking them out to dinner, et cetera. And it's huge, it's huge. So this is what we do in the dynamic model. We estimate not just the hump shape and the peak of that hump shape, but what is the optimal class size when we take into account all costs. So clearly you want the class size to be larger than that peak because there's some cost. You'll be at the peak if there was no cost whatsoever, but there's a peak cost so you want to go away from that, you want to have the class size larger than that, so you can reduce those costs relative to the benefits of this. And uh, Sort of a constrained optimization problem. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you have a resource constraint and you have this relationship. One thing I was wondering, Kyle, I, I don't know if you found anything on this. Uh, the, the optimum size, is it a function of the subject? So do you see mathematical sciences versus social sciences or anything like that? Um, we don't do, uh, don't focus on that in there. My guess is yes, it will matter. You know, I mean, like it's much easier to explain some things uh, to a large class than it would be true. So if you, that's why, for example, in Penn State, the the English faculty have convinced the uh, provost that English can only be taught in small groups. Uh, <laughs> So we have a large English faculty, while they've, you know, they've also convinced the provost that economics can be taught in class sizes of up to 500 or 1,000. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
economics, I can understand. Languages, I would have thought uh, larger class size might, might benefit, but that's not the case here. Huh? Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the data, <laughs> so I don't know what is true here. But um, I think if it's one-on-one -on -one instruction in what, what are you teaching in English? If you're teaching, you know, some rules of grammar, maybe fine, large class is fine, but you're teaching creative writing, you certainly cannot do it in large class. Yeah. Similarly, in economics, if you're doing, you know, some basic economics 101, uh, maybe a large class is fine. You're giving the multiple choice exams. It's just very basic. But if you're doing something which is more sophisticated, I mean, I find teaching an advanced course, the undergraduate course in economics, if the class size goes over 30, it's very difficult to communicate with the class because the class is, a, to begin with, at very different levels. And uh, then you can't take questions as well. And you can't get into things that people are clearly not understanding as well. So I think it depends a lot on the material. Yeah, so it's in conclusion, Kala, you know, I want to get your perspective on it seems to me that we have sort of three buckets of countries. Um, there is, you know, sort of developing countries like India and Turkey, um, who seem to have very objective, uh, highly centralized, standardized test-based admission criteria. We have countries like the U.S. that appears to uh, put a lot of emphasis on qualitative aspects, um, highly flexible. And then we have the Scandinavian countries heading in a direction that hasn't been tried before, which is to say education is really about skills. It's not about content. Um, so, so from your perspective, you have done a lot of work in this area. What do, you, what do you think, let me ask you two questions. What do you think is optimum? And, uh, and number two, where do you think these countries will go in the future? You know, I think for the US, this lack of a centralized testing system is really awful for a lot of reasons. First, it allows schools to basically promote students without giving them the basic skills that they need. So this is less so after all the reforms we've had, no child left behind and a lot of testing going on. But until you have a school leaving exam, which says, look, you left school, you have at least these skills. A high school degree will be worth a lot less if you don't have that. Secondly, when you look at what motivates these children, right? if you're an underprivileged child and you're thinking, well, you know, I want to get to a top university, um, what do I do? Um, if you're the valedictorian in some terrible school, are you going to get in? But on the other hand, maybe you're really bright. And if you've done very well in the school leaving exam, hey, everybody would see, hey, she's in the top 100 in the country. Right? We should admit her. So, I mean, especially given, I think, my background, uh, I'm also from India. I grew up there. I came, I was here in high school and uh, then I went back for my undergraduate and my master's and I came back for my PhD. So I've seen both these systems and there's some, there are flaws in both. 
in the Indian system, it's maybe too structured. You can't see what you like early on. Uh, in the American system, it, it's too amorphous. Uh, some people do well and with no, no structure, but other people you know, fail with no structure. Uh, so I think we're aiming, we're moving in a direction where all of this will be made less relevant because employers are more and more going to ask, what can you do for me? And not, what are your connections? Where did you come from? We're going to have a lot more information at the individual level in the future about what you can and cannot do than we have just now. And once that happens, and this has been shown in the uh, education literature, once you employ someone, you figure out how good they are, it doesn't matter whether they came from you know, Harvard or they came from Penn State. If they're good, they will rise. And I think we're moving in that direction. Of course, that may take 100 years to get there, and we may all be extinct before that. But uh, I think we're definitely moving in that direction, and technology is going to help us. Help us very much. Yeah, so there's sort of a happy medium between the extremes. But I was also wondering, since we have two different experiments going on, and I'm thinking uh, India and the US, uh, if you take you know, sort of the, the top engineering schools in India, like the IITs, for example, that has driven very much objective uh, uh, exams, uh, against, let's say, MIT or Stanford or something where we have the U.S. sort of admission process going on. Um, one could argue, I mean, we could look at the outputs of these two systems and ask, you know, um, which, one is, <laughs> which one is better. My intuition is that um, the U.S. engineering school output is significantly better uh, than the IITs. So uh, I wondered if, if uh, you know, an objective test is really the the best approach? Well, here's a really important question because this is something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is how do we find the best talent? And you know, how much are we losing because we don't have the best talent? You know, they, it's interesting that you brought up the IITs versus the MITs. It's harder to get into IIT than it's to get into MIT. I mean, many Indians say, well, if he doesn't get into IIT, we can send him to MIT. You know, talent. <laughs> But the other thing is, when you look at India, it's very hard to separate these two without a good model in mind, because there are 1.4 billion Indians right, on the one hand. So what you're getting at the IIT is, is really literally the cream of the crop. Okay? Secondly, when you look at people in the US, the, in the electrical engineering class and the computer science uh, class in the IITs, pretty close to 100% of the class will go abroad. Okay, this is less so now, but it's still true. And when you look at you know Silicon Valley, you look at the CEOs of uh, major American companies, Pepsi. Who are these people? They are from IIT, IIM, and they've done brilliantly in America. So compared to the, you know, given how small a fraction of the group they are in America, they've done phenomenally well, which leads you to believe 
that hey, the screening must have done something. Yeah, I sometimes feel, um, I think we have a focus on sort of research capabilities. What IITs lack, lacked before and still lack is sort of entrepreneurial uh, aspects, you know, sort of combining business with engineering. Uh, and, and that is what sort of set them behind, I would say, in some sense, you know, coming to Stanford or something like that. And so then the question would be, again, you know, are, are a fully objective exam, is, is, that, is that sufficiently predictive of success? Uh, I, I don't know, it's an open yeah. question. I, I, I agree with you to some extent. In the sense, look, what we used to call them, you know, ratu tattoos, which were people who just memorized things and, you know, got me. Yes, there are a few of those who get into the IITs, but it's much easier for somebody who's seriously smart to get into the IITs than it is for somebody who just tries to memorize as much as he can. So what you see, even in despite, I think, often very bad teaching, I mean, IIT students will tell you that at least one class where they had terrible teachers and a lack of resources compared to what you get at Stanford or you know, any top school here, these kids are really good. And you know, as they see something, they're smart enough to adapt. So even if they don't know very much about you know, how to start a company or something, well, they'll come for their PhD to Stanford or they'll come for a job to the Silicon Valley. They'll work for a company for a few years. They'll figure, hey, I can start my own company. And that's exactly what these kids are doing. They're not lacking in entrepreneurship either. The number of startups that these guys have started, they're very impressive. Excellent. Yeah, there's um, there, there's a lot here to, to think about, I think, um, in terms of how to design exams, what exactly should we test, how often should one test, how many retakes. Um, I really like the idea of the Scandinavian approach, which is basically saying you have Google now, so let's not really memorize anything. We can Google it, you know, any fact any number is out there on the internet. So then education really has to be about, uh, about concepts, uh, about ideas, um, about thinking, right? Um, that's what it is now. It's not learning, it's learning to learn. You know, yeah. what education gives you is the capability and the confidence that you can learn anything because you've done it before. You know? right. so I, I think that's what learning is going to be because things are going to change. Nothing stays the same. But as things change, if you know how to learn, you can always learn it. Right, right. that's the most important thing. Excellent, yeah, this has been great, Kara. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you very much for asking me. It was, it was a blast. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations 
with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.